The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you have gathered us here today before you and before your word to think, to face some truth that is sometimes hard. And I hope, Lord, I pray to be changed by it. Lord, I I pray that's why you've gathered us here, to not just be hearers of the word, but to be changed by it and to be doers of it. But that is up to you and to your spirit. If you would work on us to create change in us. So I ask you for that now. Would you give me the ability, Lord, to, to speak clearly about your word, but more than that, would you give to each person here your spirit in power for change? Lord, I ask you to help the truth that is here to to sit just right on each individual hearer. In some ways, some of these things are sensitive. In some ways, they are perhaps familiar, maybe new to some. Lord, I I don't know. It would be different to every one of us. But you know who each person here is and where each person is is at the moment and, and from whence they've come. And Lord, I pray that you would address your word to each person's heart here in just the right way to produce just the right fruit. Spirit of God, would you move through the room now and would you speak to people about things that may stand in the way, about sin, about bias, about distraction. Lord, speak right now and clear out barriers that your word might come and, and fall on good soil. Would you give me the ability to express it clearly? And Spirit of God, would you cause the sun to shine as good for the glory of the Father? Give help to us this morning, I pray. Would you build your church with the people and in the ways that you mean. Our hope is in you, Father, Son, and Spirit. You are God. We are not. May your will be done. Bring your kingdom here. Carry out your purpose to exalt your name. Be a father to us. More than feeding us, be a father to us, I ask. I pray this. In the name of our good and gracious and kind Savior. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of 1 Samuel chapter 5. A chapter that puts us among the Philistines. There to see how it goes for them after they have won the battle at Aphek. We read about that battle at the beginning of chapter 4. And in many ways, it was an alarming event. The Philistines came into the land, and Israel went up to fight against them. And 
in the course of a couple of days, lost two battles, the last one being a catastrophe with massive casualties made even worse by the fact that Israel, in losing the battle, lost control of the Ark of God. It was taken captive by the Philistines. You'll recall that Israel had brought this Ark, which essentially the Ark of the Lord is... It's a big box, essentially two-some feet by three-some feet. It's covered in gold. It's a couple of angels over the top of it that, that arch together. And when God told Moses how to make this, this ark, he presented it to him and, and to the people of Israel as an earthly representation of his heavenly throne. It is, so to speak, God's seat. Where his presence is is uniquely, powerfully displayed, and out from there it emanates. And so there's a great power with this ark. And you can imagine why the Israelites, in wanting to win a battle, might go and take that ark out of the sanctuary and bring it to the battlefield, assuming that God would fight for them. He didn't, and they lost. God would rather be shamed by Philistines than used by his people. And so he gives himself over to the Philistines and they carry him off victorious. And of course, if, if the Philistines have won, then so obviously has their god Dagon. He's victorious also. We met him last week at the beginning of chapter 5 when the Ark of God is brought into the temple of Dagon and put in his trophy case. Put in the temple there as, as an example of a, here's another god that Dagon has conquered. Until that night when, as we saw last week, the Ark of God makes the idol Dagon bow down to him, fall down face first in the dirt in front of the Ark twice. The last time, even more dramatically, he cuts off his head and his hands, symbolic of a a ritual execution, showing the triumph of Yahweh over this God, Dagon. As we saw last week, and now the message that God was communicating to the God Dagon, that the Lord, in fact, reigns supreme. He's going to take that message and and carry it out to the people of Dagon, all the Philistines. That's where our passage for today, at the end of chapter 5 and on through the first half of chapter 6, that's where it takes us as we see God speaking a message to the people. A message about His supreme reign. So it's a similar point to last week, with some different details, and we're going to go in a, in a different direction with it this week. But that's, that's the, the uh, essential setup for us. We are now going to travel around the land of the Philistines, and God's going to preach to them. So with that, let me read, beginning in chapter 5, verse 6, down through chapter 6, verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent And gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. 
So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done all this, done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. When they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. The word of the Lord. Our passage begins with a natural connection to the first couple of verses. Verses 1 to 5, it says that Yahweh cut off the hand of the god Dagon, yet his hand, it remains strong and powerful. It says his hand was very heavy against the people of Ashdod, not just the god, but now the people. 
He has a weighty hand. And you'll recall from discussing Eli, where we use that word heavy, the word heavy is related to the word for glory. So we've got a kind of another little pun here. His hand was gloriously heavy and weighty against the people. He's showing something about himself, displaying something of his magnitude, his heaviness, as his hand falls on them. And it strikes them with trouble. Tumors. Doesn't say what kind, and different people have thought about different things and and argued for different ideas, but we don't know. It doesn't say. Whatever it was, it was fatal, often fatal. And eventually, the people of Ashdod want nothing more to do with the ark. And so they summon the five lords of the Philistines. The Philistines had five main cities, and they had a, a, a guy in charge of each one of those cities. So the five lords kind of ruled the Philistines, and they gather them together and say, what should we do? And they say, let's send the ark on to Gath. And so they take it to Gath, and in Gath, things get worse. It says that a, a very great panic broke out there, and he afflicted all of the men, young and old, with tumors. And so Gath wants out. Let's send it on to somewhere else. And Ekron is next. It's another one of the major major cities. So they send it on to Ekron, but it's kind of like the delegation of Ekron meets them at the gate and says, no, 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 no. But they give it to them anyway, the trophy of war. It it, it gets forced on them, and it kind of makes you wonder, who's conquering whom here? It gets forced on them, and it settles in there, and it's terrible. Ekron is worse still. And they say, send it back to Israel so that this thing won't kill us. It says there was a deathly panic and the hand of the Lord was very heavy on Ekron. And everybody who didn't die, implying many did, everybody who didn't die is afflicted with tumors. And the cry of the city rises up to heaven. They are at their wit's end. Oh God, or gods, or someone out there, help! Because there's no hope. That went on for seven, the perfect number, seven months. Until finally, chapter 6, the Philistine leaders do relent. They give up. We're going to get rid of this thing. How do we do it? And they ask the religious men who don't know Yahweh. They they don't know the Lord, but they have an idea about how religious stuff works. And so they they say, "We we have some ideas. How should we send this ark back? Well, don't send it empty-handed. Obviously, in some way or another, we have offended this God by kidnapping him from from his place. So we're going to send him back to his place, and we have to send him back with some sort of a guilt offering. Like what? What is the guilt offering, they ask in verse 4? Well, let's make some golden tumors. Whatever that looks like. (laughs) Think of what a golden tumor looks like. It's just a blob of gold. Which is what leads some people... There's, there's a little language wrinkle here. Most of our English translations say they made golden tumors and golden mice. But there's another way that it could be read, and, and some folks argue that it's actually one and the same thing. Golden tumors, that is, golden mice. Because as they're trying to depict what a tumor would look like, it looks kind of like a mouse. And so it's not just make a blob, they make mice. Either way, depending on what your translation says or your footnote says, it doesn't matter because they're just guessing. 
we have to send back something to him to atone for whatever we have done wrong. And we know from Egypt that when he afflicted the Egyptians and afflicted the Egyptians and afflicted the Egyptians, they foolishly resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted until the whole place was laid waste and all of the oldest sons were dead. Let's not do that. What finally caused relief for them was they sent them away and they loaded them up with gold. Remember? So let's do that. Maybe let's make it look like tumors or mice. And that's what they did. They sent them away, but they devised one more little, little piece here just to make sure that this has not been a coincidence for seven months. They devise a plan. You see all the details there about how to get some cows to carry this thing back. Cows naturally, of course, would go back to their calves. But if they don't and they carry it straight on into Israel, then we will know that it is he, as it says in verse 9, it is he who has done us this great harm. And of course, the cows march straight over to Israel, indicating, yes, this has come from the Lord. And they pull into the Levitical city of Beth Shemesh. There are Levites there who can handle the ark providentially. And it stops right at a stone perfectly made for sacrificing. And so the Levites take the ark off and offer up a sacrifice to heaven, all under the eyes of the watching lords of the Philistines. And they see it. They know it is the Lord. And they turn around and go home, finally free of this God whom they had conquered. But now they've gotten rid of him. Thankfully, tragically, you realize what happened there. They got rid of him safely. The tragedy. And we're going to talk about some tragedy, some hard things as, as we break this down into two different observations. There, there are some things here that I'm going to talk about that are difficult to think about, particularly if this becomes more than an intellectual exercise for you, particularly if you are in the midst of something right now. Because we're going to talk about is the the topic of affliction and pain and what God's doing in that. And, And if you are in the middle of affliction and pain, there is some danger here that this will be scraping off a scab that's not healed yet. It's true, and you, you need to hear it, and I need to say it, it's, it's here. But I just want to say up front that I won't be able to present it exactly, properly, just right for every single person here, and I won't be able to answer every single question here. So if, if there's more that you want to talk about or more that you have to ask about, I, I invite you, I'd love to talk about it specifically in detail for you later. But I just have to say up front that there is something here that is cage-rattling, unnerving for us. And it's seen in the first observation. Here's my, my first point. God will exalt His name among the nations, even using affliction to do it. That's the part that's going to be hard. On purpose, using affliction to do it. 
God has a goal. He has an aim to exalt His name. That is to lift up His name. To bring to His name acknowledged, conscious glory. Worship, praise, submission, obedience. To bring that to His name. And He has that goal for everywhere on the earth. Amongst all of the nations all across the globe. That's what He's about. He's aiming to do that. Not just among those who already are His, but everywhere He will do that. And He will even use affliction. He will afflict so as to exalt His name in all of the earth. And and that is His scope here. All the earth. Up to this point in the book of Samuel, we have seen God doing many things in Israel. All, all to this point, it's been about Israel, about His people who are already in covenant with Him. He's, he's working to revive them, to, to renew them. He's bringing about, He's brought to them now the word of the Lord through a new prophet. He's torn down the, the wicked and corrupt priests. We saw how the battle was His working on them to discipline them, to grow them, to mature them. He's done a lot in Israel. And this now is leaving Israel. And He's in a foreign land among the Philistines. You know, the night before, he was in the foreign God's temple, turning things upside down. And here now, he is in the foreign land among the foreign people. This is God with his eye and his hand on the Philistines to communicate to them the same message he just said to their God. I am the sovereign, supreme, reigning Lord over all the earth not just over my people in my little place called Israel. And so that's what he communicates here in Ashdod, the heavy hand against the people. And the Lord afflicts them in a way such that they know it's Him. Repeatedly, if you look through here, again and again, the ark of the God of Israel, the ark of the God of Israel, they know who's doing this. And they want to get rid of the ark of the God of Israel. They do not think this is a really unfortunate turn of events. The ark of the God of Israel has put his hand on us. They know that. When it leaves Ashdod, it goes on to the other cities. They are well aware of that. And even up to the very end, the whole, of, of course, the whole cart incident is designed to leave God one final opportunity to say, I am the one, here's their words, who did them this great harm. Is He the one who did us this great harm? Or did it just happen? And God says, nope, I am the one. And the cart comes straight to Israel. And they watch it all the way, and they know. He makes sure that He leaves behind His calling card. Why? Well, it's hinted at in chapter 6, verse 5, where the religious people start talking with the, the leadership. What should we do? Well, we have to return, it says, there, return a guilt offering. Well, to whom? Give glory to whom? In leaving behind his calling card, he leaves a return address. To me. Return the guilt offering to me, return the glory to me. 
This is God deliberately acting so as to raise up His name and clarify, this is the one. This is the one beneath whom all of life is lived. From whom comes everything. To whom is due all honor and glory. He assures that it is His name that is exalted. And this must happen because they have a completely, up to this point, a completely wrong impression of who He is. They conquered Him in battle. They destroyed His people. They carted Him off as a prisoner. The idea in their mind is, Dagon, Yahweh. And He says, I need to clarify something. I need to be sure that is known. Because it is right. It is also good. But first, it is right. Dagon and every other god and so-called idol of the nations, this order is wrong. God must exalt His name. He is the one who reigns supreme. He is the only one. There is no other. It's right, but it's also, it's also good. This is hard for us. But it is good that God clarify, that God exalt His name in our lives. We, we are from Him, and all of life is lived to Him, and before Him we are accountable. We were made for Him. The one our hearts are looking for is Him. He must, if He is to be good, He must lift up His name. That's all over the Bible. But the unique thing here is that He will use affliction to do that. Commonly, I think very commonly, if I, if I talk about God exalting His name, God lifting up His name, God drawing to Himself praise, commonly Christians say, yep, I see that. That's a good thing. It's all over the Bible. And we associate that with things like evangelism or things like missions, things like worship, that kind of stuff. We don't often bring in affliction, trouble, pain. That's the unique thing from this passage God is using affliction. His very heavy hand, it's repeatedly emphasized throughout the text, His hand rests upon them in pain. Why? Because, as C.S. Lewis wrote in his 1940 book, The Problem of Pain, listen to this quote from Lewis, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's the part of that quote that's most famous if you've heard it before. Pain insists upon being attended to. He whispers in pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but He shouts with the megaphone of, it, of pain.
God uses pain to shout to us in our stupor. Shouting to a deaf world. And the message carried in pain, for those who have ears to hear it, is a message of clarification about spiritual realities. Those realities that we often do not see, but are more real than what we do see. Pain and suffering and trouble and affliction, and I use all those words somewhat interchangeably to try to, to cast a, a wide net over human trouble. Like These folks, they experience a wide range of trouble from just illness to death to fear of illness to fear of death to a certainty that it was coming to a worrying that... that I or my loved one wouldn't get the tumors, to uh, trying to hold it away and, and failing a wide range of, of human trouble there, like we experience, a wide range of trouble. And all of that, affliction and pain, all of it can awaken in us a sense of our human frailty, our human inability. Think about this. It exposes the folly of human advancement and human strength and human ingenuity. All of our pride and chest-thumping posturing seems even to us to be ridiculous when we are doubled over in pain over a wastebasket or over a toilet, doesn't it? When we can't make our legs work, Our heads are pounding so much that we just wish it could be quiet. Or there's an ache in our hearts, an unstoppable, unfillable emptiness of a loss that you can't bring back. We are kings until we are stopped cold by harsh reality. And we see all of our weakness and we see a vast world out there that comes from somewhere else and is ruled over by something, someone else with whom we cannot contend. There's an awakening there. As we look and we see vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless, helplessness, helplessness. God uses our afflictions and failings and sufferings and pain to call out to us about the deep things of life. When you were in the midst of that, the MTV Music Awards seemed to be as stupid as they really are. Right? And the importance of shaving a couple more strokes off your golf game seems ridiculous. Right? There is a sobering, a calling, a speaking in pain about the deep things, about the real things. Exposes false hopes and empty pleasures and warns us of an end and of a coming judgment and a reality of God. 
There is simultaneously a lifting up of God and a debasing of us as we find out just how little we are. God uses pain not because He is cruel, but because often pain is the only thing to which we will listen. All of human experience proves that point. Try to discipline kids. Try to get homework turned in on time at school. Try to enforce a traffic law that has no teeth in it. And nobody listens to you. We only listen if there's hurt. And God wants to be heard. Because it is right and because it is good. He does not use pain. He does not speak in pain. He does not afflict because He wants to afflict. He afflicts because He wants to exalt His name among the nations and among every single person for the glory of God that is right and for the good of people who need the glory of God and have supplanted it and relegated it to second, third, thirty-eighth place in life replacing it with countless other things. So he speaks in affliction to all the nations and to all of the world and to every single one of us. Do you have ears to hear? Do you have ears to hear? It is hard to bear sometimes once one realizes that God is in affliction. All throughout the passage, it is God who afflicts. It doesn't just happen. God afflicts. And when we find that, it is difficult for us to respond like Job it is difficult for us to acknowledge that while there are secondary causes, we talked about this last week, that our secondary causes carry out the will of God. Remember who killed Hophni and Phinehas? Well, Philistines with swords did. They were, they were the secondary causes, but we knew from chapter 2 that God had determined to put them to death. It says in the text. While there are secondary causes, God stands behind every trouble and nothing happens in life that He has not consciously determined should be. That's where it gets hard if you're in the midst of affliction. You, it's easy to think about why that's hard. If you've been there, if you haven't been there yet, you, you will be. It's easy to think about why that's hard. Something rises up in us. That there's a strong temptation towards anger, towards bitterness against God if you have consciously decided this should be and this hurts so much, what kind of a God are you? And that right there is the point. That right there is the point. 
that we are, are, are ready immediately to fly to a judgment against him based on my perspective, so limited that it is, based on my feelings, so personal and, and, and minute that they are. I am, I am very quick to rise to judge the king of the earth. Again, I realize, depending on where you are at the moment, that this may rest hard on you. All I can say is that I have thought about this recently. I'm not speaking emptily here. There is a reality here that we must face. God stands behind everything. And it causes, it confronts in us the the ready, quick desire to judge Him. And forces us to think about the deep things of life. What if, what if it really is, what if it really is true that the lifting up of the name of God is most important. We say that until affliction comes and then we reveal we don't believe it. But what if it's true? What if it really is true that the lifting up of the name of God is more important in God who rules perspective and even in my life? What if it really is more important than how I feel in this circumstance right here? What if it really is true that the light and momentary troubles of this world are actually attaining for me something eternal and vast? Like Paul said. What if that's true? Affliction forces you to ask and think that through. God wants to do a work to lift up His name in your life. And He may use, He does not always use, but He may use affliction to force the question, to confront in a way. And at that point, we must be sure that we respond properly, which is the second observation. We must respond to affliction by seeking the Lord and not just seeking relief. We must respond to affliction by seeking the Lord and not just seeking relief. Throughout the passage, God acts to afflict in a way that makes clear that He is the sovereign one and that He has done it. And the Philistine response to it all? Well, chapter 5, verse 7. His hand is heavy against our God, Dagon, whom we just set up back in his place and patched back on the hands and the head. His hand is heavy against our God, Dagon, and against us. The God of Israel is heavily against us, so let's send him back to his own place so that he will not kill us and our people. You see that? He belongs over there. Let's send him back. 
and get rid of him. They have a thoroughly postmodern mindset, which is ironic given how very pre-modern this text is. Postmodernism is not new. They have their gods. We have our gods. The only problem comes if we try to hurt their gods and afflict them. That's what we've done accidentally. We shouldn't have done that. So let's respectfully give him back and leave ourselves. If we send him back, do you, do you see? Give glory to the God of Israel does not mean in their mouth worship him. It means like we might give honor to the president of France when he comes You're the president of something. We will respect you. We'll have a state dinner. We'll play some music. We'll dress up. We're not going to obey you. I mean, you're not our president. You're their president, and one day you're going to go home. We have ours. You have yours. They are thoroughly committed to the worship of Dagon. Send him back. Give glory to him. Next sentence, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. There it is. There's the goal. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off of our gods that we may keep them and follow them safe and secure just like before, like we want it. There there is no idea here of we have seen him to reign supreme over our God by casting him down. We have seen him to be the powerful one in charge of all of life. We will now bow before him. No. We will get rid of him so we can carry on. The real goal is relief. What's your goal? Amidst affliction and pain. Relief? Now, carefully, I am not saying that relief itself is wrong. I take ibuprofen when I get a headache. Doctors are fine. I'm not saying relief itself is wrong. What I'm saying is that are you, I'm challenging here, is are you pursuing relief instead of God? First, before God. That's the problem. Do you only want relief? Do you want relief most? Or do you want the name of the Lord exalted in your life, submitted to Him, Praying along with Job, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. Do you hear that? Job knows where it all came from. Job doesn't know everything about it. We know more about Job's life than Job does. We've read chapter 1 of Job. But Job knows it's come from God. And he says, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. Is that what you want? Or do you want, oh, just stop slaying me. Never mind the trust part. That is a great tragedy. To pursue relief as the primary goal is a great tragedy because twofold, it doesn't actually please God. It doesn't gain you relief from Him even. It, it seems like it here. They send him away. They, they watch it all. And presumably the tumors pass and they live happily ever after. Not really. The hand of God still rests upon them. There, there comes a time when they must give a final reckoning to this God. He drew near. There was an opportunity. That door closed. 
It is just disaster delayed, however. It didn't fix anything. It postponed it. So the tragedy is is pursuing relief doesn't actually gain you relief and it misses something. It misses something marvelous because there is actually a real answer to the question of verse 4. What is the guilt offering that we shall return to Him? What is the way they're asking? What is the way we can get His hand to be pulled off of us? There actually is, in a bigger picture, they don't understand it, but there actually is a guilt offering to be returned to God that will cause His hand to lift off of you forever. Do you know His name? Of course you do. There is a right answer to what is the guilt offering. There is one that God sent and said, Offer this back to me to appease my wrath, to propitiate my wrath. And I will lay my wrath on Him, not on you. I'm talking big picture here. God provided a sacrifice. And it, it could it could just be that I, I don't know I don't know who you are, I don't know who I'm talking to, but it could just be that I'm talking to someone today that God is afflicting you to make you ask the question, what's real, what's deep, what's whole, what can I offer back to you, God, to make you pleased with me? And the answer to that is Jesus. Provided by God, not from your own hands. Provided by God to be returned back to him. Lord Take Christ. Take Christ in my place. Be pleased with me. If that's you, seize Christ. Cast all of your hope on Him. God aims to exalt His name in your life and step one of that is for you to bow the knee to Jesus. God come in flesh. That's not all. There's a lifetime to be lived after that, but it starts right there. Surrender to Christ and trust Him. He's your only hope. He's a great hope. But Christians, we we have to ask a question here because there is a, a large problem that Christians still struggle with and we struggle with it to different degrees. In its worst cases, this struggle looks like a, a, a giving up in life that seems humble on the outside. It seems like a, well, who can contend against the God who's done this to me? But what it is actually is rank arrogance. If this is how God will treat me, I will not play anymore. I'm going to pick up my ball and go home. It's a withdrawing rather than a fighting to believe the truth and live accordingly. Let me clarify the difference there. When you face an affliction or a hardship and you realize 
God is behind this, though there are secondary causes of it. God has determined that this should happen in my life. And I look at that and I say, I don't like this. This sucks. Yeah, I said that from the pulpit. You're saying it in your hearts. It's okay. Or worse. Right? We don't say that in public, but that's what you're saying. Meaning, how dare he? Maybe there's no anger in it. Maybe it's a, ah, a kind of a, of a wilting. But, there's, but there is a, this is not what it should be. So I'm just going to sit down and, and stop believing, actively believing, and never going to deny it with my mouth. I'm going to stop actively believing that God is good, that God loves me, that God graciously is working to remove idolatry out of my life, to equip me to walk with Him and bring Him glory, exalting His name in my life and through me and others. And for me to do that, I'm going to have to stand up, believe, and walk. No. No. That's arrogance. In a very limp display. That's a, de- that's a decision by the Christian. I know what is right. He is doing wrong. I can't go with that. Meaning, I won't go with that I won't embrace it and say my feelings say X the Bible says Y not W-H-Y the letter Y my, my feelings say A the Bible says B I'm going to go with the Bible my feelings ask how, how can you be good and do this but the bible says he is good and he is accomplishing good and all things are working together for the good and that all the light and momentary troubles of this world are attaining for me a good and i want lord i want i'm not there but i want to get to the place of the psalmist who says though my flesh and my heart may fail the lord is the strength of my heart and my portion forever what do i have that what is there on earth i desire besides you i'm not there but i want that and you fight for it rather than say Boy, it would have been nice otherwise, but I guess not. There is a fight in the Christian life. And often we come upon it in the midst of affliction and pain that challenges us, very strongly challenges us on what is true. There is a fight to grab hold of the truth and believe it while crying out, God, help my unbelief. Christian, are you letting go of it and not fighting? When affliction, when trouble happens, and it will, you will face a question. Do I believe Him? And will I walk with Him or not. And at, at that point, may God, and this, this, is, this is a prayer of sorts, God, may you shine into the hearts of your people and give them grace to fight, 
to take thoughts captive and submit them to Christ. We must, we must fight. It is worth it. We do have a God who is good. We do have a God who is working through every circumstance in all of our lives to lift up His name in front of us, which is right and is good to us. Fight for Him. Fight for faith in Him. Do not let go of Him. Let me pray. Father, we need grace from You. We need grace from You. So would you correct us? Would you speak words right now to individual hearts that are here, wherever they are, Lord, whatever situation they're in, words of comfort or encouragement or conviction and confrontation, whatever it is that's needed. Lord, work here among us. And as we take the, the cup and the bread of communion, would you remind us of how it is we actually know you to be good. There is a cross that is real. It happened in history. There is a tomb that was empty. It happened in history. It testifies to us of your passionate commitment to us, your people, to make us right. So Lord, give grace to your people now that If there are some here, if there are ones here dealing with different things, Lord, give them grace to fight, to look at the cross and believe. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for what you've done to save. All by your doing. Without it, without it we would be without hope in this world and in the next But with it, for those of us you have claimed as your own, Lord, with it we have hope now. Even amidst trouble, we may rejoice. And we have a sure hope that there is a day coming with no more tears and no more sorrow. Unbridled joy has been won for us by you. You are good. You are good. You are good. Bless your name. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.